When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is the true story of a New York City boy with big town hopes and small neighborhood dreams of becoming BFFs with the Real Housewives and other Bravo celebrities. Then... One day, that dream actually came true. Let me take you behind the velvet rope. Hey everyone, this is David. Welcome back, Behind the Velvet Rope. Let's just get right into it today because we are joined by the one, the only, Mr. Michael Fishman. Hello. Hi, how are you? How are you today? What is going on? Uh, I'm good. I mean, it's it's a busy couple of days. I got some meetings and stuff going on. I'm pitching some projects. So a lot of stuff good. It's just all exciting, good stuff. Where are you? I don't even know where you are in the world. I'm in Los Angeles because we're still in production. Um, and this is kind of my home base. I grew up out here. So I'm a, I'm a local and then, uh, you know, kind of working back and forth. We kind of mix which days we're working and what's going on. Well, you grew, well, how is filming and COVID going? Like, it's just, I mean, I know some TV shows, you know, I have to say like Hollywood doesn't miss a beat. Like I'm shocked at how TV has really, cause at first, right. I mean, I think we thought like, how is TV going to go on? And it yeah, has. I, you, you think hundreds of people on a set, how are you possibly going to have hundreds of people together? And there have been a few incidents, but they've been really, really low. And so I think that that is uh, really, it's been great. It's been a marvelous thing. We were one of the first shows back, uh, especially I think we were maybe even the first comedy. And PPE and masks and one-way walkways, and we get tested every single day, uh, and we get the results that day. So wow. everything is done so thoroughly. It's, uh, it's a different world in that sense. Um, I miss having an audience, a live audience in-house. We still have people, but, but it, it's in-house people. Um, and I love that live feedback because that it gives you real authentic reaction. And then 
with the crew, not being able to, to hug some of my crew members and, and interact the way we normally do. I tried really hard at the beginning of the year. I gave everybody a pin, kind of something as a symbol that I acknowledge you and that, that we're still connected, that you matter, that we are still all together. And so we kind of gesture to them and, and indicate so that they know that they're loved and valued. So when they're across the stage or 10 feet away, because I can't get within distance. And now we wear wristbands that if we're within like seven, eight feet, they, they ping on you so that you know you're too close. Really? So like when you're filming the scenes, because like I watch the show, I am a fan, which I'm not a fan of everyone that I chat with and interview with, but that's interesting. So I have to go back and see. So is that how it is? Like, are you all six feet apart once no, or we're no? Kind of, because you guys are all tested. Yeah. As a cast, okay. we essentially have quarantined ourselves and we're in each other's bubble, essentially, in a that weird way. That makes sense. So in the first couple episodes, we were kind of keeping space. I mean, even at the table, you'll see we were like sitting apart and slowly with all the testing and everything, we've all just gotten closer and closer together. And it's really a difference without the audience. What, there's just like random people brought in that are spaced out that are watching it now? We have production people and, and there's kind of a group of people. Um, we, we don't want to bring in laughers or, or people that are generic in that sense. What I miss is our audience is so passionate. And they have such a history with us. So they come with a, a deep-rooted understanding of who all the characters are. And I love that you get that immediate feedback from an audience of like, that joke worked that we thought was going to work. Or you hit people different than we – like, we thought it was funny. They had a, oh, moment or a, or a moment where it hit them harder. And all of a sudden, maybe you need to play with the wording. Maybe you need to engage in a different way. Or maybe that's where you need an alternate joke. And I, I love that real experience and I miss acknowledging the audience and then saying goodbye to them at the end of the night because I think they're a huge part of what we do. That makes sense. Well, you said you're local because you grew up there. Well, that's because you started at age six on Roseanne. So here is my question. This is just like a legitimate question. Like, how does one become a child actor? Like, you truly say at six, like, is someone really aware or were you, I guess, like, is there anyone, you know, you look at like Mary Kate and Ashley Olsen, like, yeah. okay, they didn't say before they can speak that they wanted to go work on Full House. Like, did you want to do this or, and then there's no shade to any parents out there. I'm just curious, like how it all. No, and I think, I, I think a huge part of that is that no shade to any parents either. People have to be honest with their experience. And when you're so young, your parent make that, makes that decision. In my case, I actually made this decision which I think was really valuable because whenever it was tough or chaotic or there was craziness, my parents always were like, is this what you want? And I never felt like, no, this isn't what I want anymore. It just was a reality of like, okay, work has realistic parts to it that aren't always fun. And so my sister started auditioning for commercials and I started going with her and I asked my parents if I could. And the audition for Roseanne came up. And my parents didn't want me to go because they didn't want me to do anything long-term because they both had totally normal jobs and had no interest in being involved in the business as like a long-term thing. So, you know, er, you know, you know how it works out. It just lines up that I get a nine-year run on a huge show and we'd have to rearrange our whole lives. And you knew at six, like you were conscious of like, this really seems like something I want to do. Yeah, I remember wow. a lot of my earliest memories are the show or the auditions or it's so funny. I went to the first audition and my parents were horrified because I came out saying, so when are they going to call about my job? And my parents were like, it's not how it works, you know, and 
it was seven auditions spanning six months. There was two months where we didn't hear anything. And every Friday, my dad, because my dad's like, you can only ask on Friday. And he'd call and say, can I tell him he didn't get it? And the person, you know, the agent would say, no, no, he's still in the running. We're not sure. And my dad was just like, this is not what I envisioned or wanted. Wow. Did you go on a lot of auditions before Roseanne? Or was this like one of your first, this was your no. first audition ever? It was it wasn't my first, but it was early. I hadn't gone on a lot wow. of stuff. It was 1988 and there was a writer strike. So there was no work. And that's part of the reason that my agents talked my parents into going. So they said, you know, they, the show wants somebody with experience. He'll never get it, but there's not a lot of auditions and he just started. It'd be a good experience. So uh, everything lined up the way it was supposed to. Wow. And have you encountered like a lot of children like, you know, just throughout that time that it, they didn't want to be there. I mean, not even on Roseanne, just like colleagues where it was really their parents, where they were like, this is what you're going to do. And It's a mix. I think um, there's a lot of us who are really passionate about what we do, who love what we do. And I think, I think it shows, you know, uh, Jaden Ray is one of those young performers who plays my daughter who wanted to do this. Ames uh, McNamara, who plays Mark. These are young performers who really want this, who like this. It's, it's a passion for them, which is why I'm so excited to watch them grow. And I try to be such a support structure. But yeah, along the way, you see parents who are more invested than the kids. And unfortunately, those are the ones that I, I think really struggle. And then you see kids who got in before they were ready or realized it wasn't all that they wanted because it's work and you're in an adult environment and there's access to things that kids probably shouldn't see a lot of times and, and without the right structure around you it's easy to kind of go off the rails and be exposed to things right were you nervous when you went for your audition were you like i want this there's not a lot or were you just like okay let me go in and do this i think i just i was so joyful to get to do this thing i remember the first day i met jeff thomas who was a, a guy who worked for carsey warner for like 30 years who became my friend who we still exchange emails and cards and things to this day. Like I just was in love with the people and every day I went to work and it's the same now. Uh, and it's one of the things I think makes me really good on the directing producing side is I love the people and I love building a community and a collaborative environment. And I don't care where a good idea comes from. Give me what you have and let's make the best thing possible. And, you know, I like connecting with people in general. So I think I value what everybody does and how they do it. And I, I, I came into this business wide eyed. And I think the one thing I can say from people who know me is I really value everyone and I never lost that enthusiasm. That makes sense. And then is this true that you, because you weren't like a known or you had experience, is this true that like the network didn't want you in Roseanne or someone didn't want you in Roseanne really is the one that fought for you? Yeah. Um, the network wanted one kid and the production company wanted somebody else and she wanted me because I told her a joke at the second audition when I met her and we clicked and I'm kind of the first thing she won. So, you know, that, that at times hasn't always boded well, because I think that it, it, it clouded how people sometimes felt about me. But the reality is whether I was the person that necessarily one group or another wanted at the end of the day, I'm kind of the person that fit what we were doing. And I think I, I really have upheld my role and my part of this and shown my worth over the course of time. So I, I really don't think anybody can, can disagree that the, the right choice worked out the way it was supposed to. 
who was the other kid that the network wanted? Is it anyone that went on to be someone we know? Yeah, I heard that one of them was Macaulay Culkin and the other one was Matthew Lawrence. So they both have had great careers. So there's no, there's no wow. problem or complaint. And there's certainly no animosity. You know, even, you know, somebody else did the pilot. I wasn't in the very pilot, which we didn't know when I auditioned. My parents were even more horrified when they realized it wasn't a pilot. It was 13 episodes right out the gate. And so, you know, I, I have always felt like, you know, Sal Barone, although I would never met him, he decided he wanted to do something else and, and he had grown a lot and didn't really fit the age that they were going for and wanted to go a different way in his life. So I've always had nothing but kind of open and kindness. And I just feel like it worked out the way it was supposed to. It's not like we were ever competition. It's not really like I look at even now when I audition for things or, or I know I'm up for a project versus other people. It's really not a competition between me and them. It's about who fits best in the project and who gets the opportunity. Cause in our world, you're going to try for a million different projects and whether you get them or not, there's lots of things to be done. That's a good attitude to have though. I mean, I think it probably takes some people in the acting world a long time to get there if they ever get there. I mean, it is yeah, true. I, 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 a lot I, of people I, don't. It, it's, it's a rejection business in some ways, mm -hmm. but I also, you know, one of the gifts for me is I was a baseball player and I played growing up and then I played after and in between my work time and again, that's kind of a, a game of failure is the odds are against you. But I think if you look at the world that way, it's a very pessimistic view, right? But the reality is every time you get one of these opportunities, it's huge. It's, a, it's amazing. So come and enjoy the adventure of it and the fact that, you know, I don't work in a totally stable environment. It's not a traditional workspace, but that's one of the things I love about it is every day is different. Yeah. And the person who was in the pilot, that person didn't go on to be an actor. The person. No, he, I, from my understanding, they left the business and the family wasn't in love with doing it. And I think that's important too, because if you're a kid who works and you decide this isn't what you want for that to be respected and the environment was crazy and chaotic and, and there's a lot of stuff going on as, as the stories have kind of come out over the years. And the truth is, I feel like I was well suited for that and kind of suited for tackling whatever came along the way. And you said, so like Roseanne like fought for you and got her way. And you said that was like, then was there negative? I don't even know what the right word is like vibes going your way from some people. Like, I mean, that was one of the first things that like you said, Roseanne. I, I, yeah. I think one of the things is in every business and anything you do, everybody's not going to like you. You know, even as I do work now, every project I do, there's somebody who doesn't like it. And I think you have to accept that that comes with everything you do in life is like, you know, you're doing a, a podcast and people are going to come to it. And there's always going to be a few people who just want to tell you for whatever reason, it, it could be, they've known you before, or they just, they caught you on a bad day or they didn't like your picture. Like it can be the most arbitrary thing in the world. And I think part of it is I know how lucky I am to get to do what I do. So whatever the other part of that is, it's easy to kind of, kind of brush off. Wait, I have another question. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? For me, listen, I love being the host of the Behind the Velvet Rope podcast, but bringing 
you guys five shows a week, tracking down the top Bravo celebrities to bring you new creative content every day. That causes me stress. It causes me anxiety. I'm not even going to get into the lack of sleep or lack of a relationship. So I needed somewhere to turn. And for me, I turn to BetterHelp. I love BetterHelp because it's professional counseling right from the comfort of your own home. What they do is they match you with a licensed therapist who is a professional that fits your needs and the things that you want to talk about. So you may not have the same issues as I do. They also deal with LGBTQIA issues, anger, grief, trauma. If you are having relationship issues, if you're in a relationship, good for you. I'm not. They really deal with everything and everything you share is confidential. So I cannot stress how much because of this job that I love so much, it has caused me some issues and BetterHelp really is a lifesaver. Right now, if you guys also want to start living a happier life, as a listener, you get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash velvetrope. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash velvetrope. Betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash velvet rope. And as a listener, you guys get 10% off your first month. Try it. I promise you, you are going to feel so much better once you talk to one of their licensed professional counselors. And listen, so many people have been using BetterHelp. They're actually recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. DM me. Let me know how it goes. This has been a lifesaver for me. Yeah, I'm kind of the same way. Yes, people do tell me all the things they don't like. They could like 100 shows in a row and the 101st show they don't like and they would yeah. like to tell me about it for 17 hours. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. You're welcome for those other 100 shows, by the way. <laughs> right, right. But okay, so I get it. But I, I'm kind of the same way. You just let it kind of, you're just like, there's, you take the bad with the good and the good far outweighs the bad. Yeah. So you got the job and then were your parents like, okay, we support or they're like, oh my God, do you know what you're getting? You know, like, cause they didn't work in the business. So like, no, they, we came in so unaware, um, which probably was good because our set was a different environment to begin with anyway. Um, but my parents are kind of were horrified. They, they kind of had this reality of like, okay, our whole life has to be adjusted. So in the very beginning, my grandfather would take me like at the very beginning of the week or my dad would take me Monday to start the week and then my grandfather would take me in the middle of the week and then my mom would take me at the end. And so it was kind of this kind of by community thing. And then I had a set sitter slash nanny who took me for a couple of years in the middle. What my family always tried to do was make sure that I kept a base of who we had been. We stayed in the same house. We stayed in the same neighborhood. I went to public school the days and weeks I wasn't working. So it was wow. never like, oh, now you're quote unquote a star and you got this different life. It's like, okay, this is something you do. And in my family, it was always like, okay, one day you're going to grow up and get a real job. And so it very much, right. like, you know, it's like Thanksgiving dinner where everybody goes to Thanksgiving dinner and says, you know, your, your family kind of pushes on you. It's like, hey, what are you working on? Have, have you made it yet? And the truth is, in my family, there's always this kind of expectation of like, it's nice, this artistic thing you're doing. And it's great when it's working. You need stable backup plans. 
Well, I'm Jewish too. So I, I was a corporate tax lawyer in my former life. When I was young, my parents were like, you can either A, go to med school, B, go to law school, or C, you can find your own way in college and find some money to pay for it. So I totally get it. Yep. So I mean, I applaud your parents for, you know, letting you follow your dreams. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you were on the set in the beginning, were you like, you just figured out I mean, did you know what you were doing? Like, oh my God, these are a lot of lines. Like you just kind of fell into it. Well, the very beginning, I couldn't even read. And so I would, my mom and I, my mom would read me the script Sunday night before the table read Monday morning. And when we first started, I think they were horrified that very first table read. I mean, I had cars and I'm, I'm a high energy guy. So I'm not a real sit around guy to begin with. So like I had cars and toys and things around me. And I had lines right at the beginning of that, that second episode. And I wasn't even on the right page. And I think they were all waiting. There was a group that I think kind of was waiting for me to fail a little bit because that, you know, coming out of this, not knowing anything. Right. But I had memorized the whole script. So I knew where I didn't need to read it because I couldn't. So I just memorized the whole thing. And I have a really good memory from that standpoint, especially as a kid, I did and one of the things for me is what I tried to do is learn from everybody, not just the cast, but like every aspect. I wanted to learn every aspect of what every job was and what every person did. Because I think secretly in my life, I knew that this was it for me. Like I love this business. I I've always loved this business. So I was really good at hitting my mark and, and finding my light. And <laughs> there are times you'll see in the old show, where they used to use me to kind of nudge Roseanne into her light or nudge her onto her mark. Or there were a few times where people would give me a hug and say, what's my line? And I would whisper their line because I knew everybody. And every once in a while it got me in trouble because every once in a while somebody would take a pause or dramatic pause. And when you're young and you don't know, every once in a while you get used to that. And then a few times I was like, you're supposed to say, and then they were like, don't tell me my line. Right? Like, you're ruining that moment. So you have to learn kind of this dance, right? Of this, the art of when to speak up and when to kind of quietly just let everything roll. Interesting. And there was never, like you say, you love it. There was never a time when you were like, look at all those kids playing on the playground. I mean, I know you had like regular school too. You just never thought of like, this is hard. I want to go and have a fun childhood. Not that this wasn't fun. It was hard. Yeah. I mean, and you know, um, I think year two or so the national anthem thing i mean we had bomb scares and death threats and like i grew up in an environment where we got metal detectors and things long before 9 11 where we kind of locked down our facilities certain days of the week and um growing up in that environment you become aware of both the good and the bad of being in a public space and having a public life so you know i mean the tabloids were everywhere and any story that could have been, you know, there were a couple times I had a disagreement with my parents and kind of like left the house or whatever. And, you know, I get this time period, I get paged and my parents be like, you got to come home because the national Enquirer is going to call tonight. If you're not here, they're going to run a story. And I'm like, this is the most absurd, like it's a weird way to grow up. But for me, one, I guess I didn't totally know different because my, you, you only know your life. It's like anybody you grow up in the world and then when you get out in the world, you're like, Oh, everybody else doesn't do that. Like everybody's yeah, like, family. 
doesn't do that? Anytime I interview someone that has like really famous parents, I'm always intrigued about like, this is your life. Like you didn't know any different. Like, I'm so curious. It's, like you said, like, this is all you knew really. Yeah. And, and I, I think I always had this realization that I knew these pressures and these other things came with it, but how much I loved what I got to do. Cause like the flip side of that is I used to get to walk into a cancer ward at a hospital and people almost would forget they were sick for five minutes. Cause they were so excited. Like what we do touches people in a really special way. A lot of times, especially if you work on a good project, good projects touch people. And I, I think I always took that in as, okay, that's a responsibility I now have to try to put something positive into the world again and again and again. Right. And you said like when Roseanne sang the national anthem and that went awry, you guys had like death threat. Like that was the first time like on the set where things oh, yeah. were. I mean, we had wow. bomb stairs where we had to evacuate. We had, uh, I was the guy who went out and did most of the press. It was ironic. We had James Anderson was our PR guy and he trained me and I kind of was well suited for it. I was equipped to go out and handle tough questions. And there's also the advantage of you can only be so mean to a seven, eight, nine year old. Um, but I was well suited for that and I felt comfortable doing it. So then it became a huge advantage for me and it also allowed me to like travel. So a lot of, you know, two or three weekends a month, especially when I wasn't playing baseball, we would travel and do press and I loved it because I got to see the majority of the country. It was such a great learning environment for me. And so I, I always saw the advantages of it as opposed to, yeah, there were pressures and yeah, it was tough. And yeah, there were scary moments or negative moments or there was chaos on our set as people know, but at the same time, you look at the advantages you have and you have to keep a, an element of perspective. And I'm kind of an optimist anyway. So I, I think that's kind of the way it worked for me. The wait is over. That's right. Season five of the Kardashians is here. Just when you thought life couldn't get any faster, they're punching it into overdrive. Chris, Courtney, Kim, Chloe, Kendall, and Kylie are back and continue to defy expectations in all their endeavors. So get ready to go behind the glitz and glamour of the most iconic family on television. The all-new season of The Kardashians premieres May 23rd, streaming on Hulu. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. What was like one of the scariest moments? Was it like the national anthem or one of these other things? Oh, yeah. Happened? I mean, um, when the show ended a couple years ago, um, suddenly over, over the Twitter stuff, I mean, I got a lot of death threats and I got death threats from both sides. I got death threats initially because of what she said. And then because I, I didn't agree with what she said, then I got more. And that was kind of at the end of my marriage. And it was one of the things that was a real contention is my ex-wife didn't love this business and didn't love me working in the, in the inconsistency of it and those things. And that put an extra strain. It was kind of like, you know, it wasn't the defining thing, but it was, it's certainly not an easy thing. And it's different. Like 
for me that morning, you know, you, your phone rings and the answering machine gets it while you're starting to get phone calls on your cell phone from press. And it's a death threat where somebody has your home phone number. And I'm, you know, probably unfortunately been through it so many times. Like my reaction is like, well, if they really intended, they're not going to call you and leave you a message. Like, like, don't worry about that. Right. But having kids and trying to ease their pressure or their pain, it's, it's not a normal life situation. And I have more questions on this in a little while, but so yeah. you actually, when the show ended abruptly because of the whole Twitter thing, you yourself got death threats, even though you didn't say any of this. No, I was pretty outspoken though. Cause what I said, you that did, day, right. Here, here's what happened is that day is, uh, I had stayed up to write a script. So I had just gone to bed about, about the time it was starting to hit the news cycle. Um, so I immediately, somebody called and asked me for a response. I immediately looked, couldn't find it because it had already been taken down. So I reached out to her team and to her, but didn't hear from her. Um, and then what I did is once I, once they started trickling out and I actually saw, you know, I had just spent a year, year and a half saying, these are the kind of things we'll never say or do because I was the staunchest supporter and the person, you know, when we did our premiere thing, I was the one person they kept asking these questions about xenophobia and prejudice and all the stuff. And that's never who we've been. And I was the most active and outspoken. So the same people all wanted a response. And I'm like, I'm not going out to the whole world that way. I'm going to, I'll use my social media. I'll have a response because it was on social media. And I think I had the most honest response is I condemned the statement because I didn't agree with it. Uh, it's not who I've ever been. It's not consistent with my beliefs. I have been outspoken in my life about my beliefs. And I learned that particularly from her. And so I've always been taught, you see something, you say something, you stand up. I mean, it was even in our Go Cubs episode from that season. Yeah. So for me, not only did I speak up and say, okay, I, I'm not okay with that. We have to be very careful, much like I said to you already, is we have to be responsible about the messages we put in the world. We have to be responsible about what we say and how we handle this and be very clear. And we cannot put anything out or say anything that is prejudice, bigoted, or, or unreasonable in that sense. But the very first thing I said about it, too, was it was out of character with who I had known her to be. It was out of character. And I said it to the world, and I said it to her. And we had an exchange on Twitter in front of the whole world. I basically got, you know, I got admonished like a kid which was fair, but I felt I was being open and honest and having integrity from the standpoint of it was out of character in my experience. And it wasn't the way I feel that we've been throughout our show or career, but it also wasn't right. And I also got a series of some other messages that had been posted along the way that aren't right and, and that I don't agree with. And frankly, we should have a right in this country to disagree. We should have a right to voice our opinions. We should be able to take stances. There are consequences for the stances we take. And then also we get to show the world who we are by our continued behavior and action and reaction. And so, you know, what happened next was kind of this, like, there was a lot of talk that no one contacted, no one cared, no one tried. Um, and, and, there was a spin game that occurred on all sides, not even just us, just the world as a whole. 
But that's the problem when you live a public life is you don't get control over everything or the narratives of how things are. And then the show was canceled. And that was devastating for me. And one of the first things I did was apologize to the head of the network because I felt like we totally, you know, Channing Dungey fought for us to be that show, to be the ABC reboot. And I didn't feel like we valued her. And I felt like what, what was said and how it went down was offensive to her in particular in a, in a really significant way and as a position that I could never imagine what that had felt like. And I, I just still to this day feel like it's just an unfortunate, terrible situation. Everybody's loved somebody that they know who has said or done something that they didn't like. And I have made mistakes in my life. And I said this the next day too is everybody makes mistakes. I think we have to keep that in mind. And I, I, that's the one thing about cancel culture, right? Like we have to be held accountable because we have a, we have a soapbox and we have a microphone but people also have to have the ability to learn from their mistakes and people have to be honest in that sense is I've never met a single person who hasn't made mistakes and I've made plenty. I just don't want to be judged by every single bad moment. We get to shape our legacy and I get to continue to shape my legacy. Well, I imagine like Roseanne and John Goodman were like, I mean, was it like a family? Like, did you have two sisters growing up? I mean, from the show, like, was the, were these like your sisters? Like, were they like parents to you? Like, For me, it was much or more. Was like it a like family. a very work environment or did John and Roseanne like really? No, it's a weird thing. It, it's work and there were work moments, but there were also family moments. And Roseanne and I in particular had a really close relationship. And I worked on a ton of projects for her after the show to help her especially I was kind of the guy she and her family would call when they couldn't get something done or made. I was the problem solver and, and built sets and did a lot of technical stuff. And I love that. I love to help um, because I, I love and value her. I always have, and I always will. And I think, you know, John and I had to grow into knowing each other because John hadn't had kids or spent a lot of time around kids. And I was much more boisterous. The girls were older, right? So they were teenagers who became young adults who left for college. And the one thing I'll tell you is I feel I'm very proud of how much I have supported, protected, encouraged, and, and been a loving, supportive person in their lives. I, even though I was the young guy in a weird way, I always prioritized who they were, how they felt, and, and making sure I was trying to be a positive presence. I mean, the thing is, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by big wireless providers... If there's one thing I've learned, there's always a catch. So when I first heard that Mint Mobile offers premium wireless services starting at just 15 bucks a month, I thought, okay, what's the catch? But after speaking with them and using their service, it all made sense to me. There isn't one. Mint Mobile is the first company to sell wireless services online only. It's a brilliant idea. I don't know why no one has thought of this before. So by cutting out retail brick and mortar stores, there's no crazy overhead costs that they have to pay that get passed down to you. They're able to save all of that. And the only thing that they pass down to you is great savings. That's right. The plans start at just $15 a month. 
I'm using it. It's great. And of course, it comes with unlimited talk and text, high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And don't freak out yet. You can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and you keep your same phone number. So for everyone looking to get in touch with me, I have the same phone number since switching to Mint Mobile. And if you're not 100% satisfied, they have a seven-day money-back guarantee. This has changed my life. It starts at 15 bucks a month. So to get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash velvet rope. That's mintmobile.com slash velvet rope. And you will cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash velvet rope. If you want to stop paying exorbitant amount and only want to pay 15 bucks a month, mintmobile.com slash velvet rope. That's it. 15 bucks a month. Were you close to them? I mean, were, it sounds like you were the closest to Roseanne out of everyone on the set. Yeah. I mean, well, Lori and I were super close too. I mean, Lori had a daughter who was one of my best friends, Zoe Perry, who's now on uh, Young Sheldon. And I used to go to their house and spend the night. So I was at Lori's house quite a bit. And, you know, Sarah and, and Lisi, you know, it's a lot like having siblings, right? They're into things that I wasn't into yet, right? And it's not cool to have the little brother tagging along. And, you know, Sarah in particular, growing up in this business, you know, her friends are Leonardo DiCaprio and, and you know, all these like Tobey Maguire and like, like all of what would become the future stars. Like that was the little group of friends that like the crew members would make fun of her little, they call them the scuffy group because they all showed up in Doc Martens and kind of had a little angst to them, but they were passionate, creative people. And you just, you look around and like, and so I wanted to be there, like Christmas and holidays and, and Hanukkah and things like that. We did stuff at Sarah's house, but it was the most amazing group of people. And so sometimes I got to hang out in a room and I was the cool little brother who got to be part of something. And then certain times it's like, okay, it's time for you to go do something else so that we can be cool and do our own thing. Are you ever, like, you look at, like, okay, Laurie Metcalf, like, Oscar-nominated, like, Sarah Gilbert, The Talk. Like, do you ever look at these people that you knew way back when and you're like, wow, you've gone on to do so many amazing things? Or you just, you could tell there was something, you know, that you were with these uber-talented people? I think you always know that you're in a talented group. Um, we're really lucky. I think every person on our show, for the most part, has had a great career. And, and people have gone on, I mean, even, like... Jim Pickens, who, who is now known for Grey's Anatomy, he's been Chuck and been around and we knew his talent from years ago, right? And we had all these guest stars who were amazing. I mean, just like, who's who? So you never knew who was going to walk through the door and everybody was a legend. And there was an essence in a way that you're working with legends and that all of these people in so many ways are legendary. So what I've tried to do is take the best pieces from them and learn as much as I could and try to harness those pieces and, and make them part of my experience to better prepare me moving forward. Do you remember certain guest stars like, okay, Morgan Fairchild, Sandra Bernhard, George Clooney, like you have vivid yes. memories of these people? A hundred percent. I mean, even people who were there briefly. I mean, uh, Bob Hope did an episode. Uh, Milton Berle showed up. You know, Milton Burrow was a funny one because he, he turned to me, he goes, hey, I hear you dress in drag from time to time. And I started like, you know, that's a weird thing to say to somebody, right? But he turned to me and he's like, he goes, hey, 
if you have the confidence to do that, you just keep going because you have no idea how bold and how brave you are yet, right? It was such a like, and then you realize who that is as a kid. And you're like, man, that's as good a compliment as you're ever going to get. Or I got to hit on Sharon Stone at the height of her popularity. She was the beautiful woman in Hollywood. She was everybody's like dream person. And there I get to be a producer literally hitting on her and flirting with her. Like you get to do things that you just can't put into words. I, I was so aware. The ones I love the most are the classic television people. You know, the we had basically the whole cast of Gilligan's Island on the show. And, and there were all these just legendary people along the way. And I'm just so thankful for that opportunity. And you knew they were legends, even though like Gilligan's Island's before your time. Oh, I watched Gilligan's Island. Cause you gotta keep in mind, I was around in the middle of the day, right? There were times where I could check out television in the middle of the day. So I knew like, I love Lucy. I still think is one of the best shows that's ever been made. And so for me, I've always tried to be a student of this business and try to understand. And that's another thing the people around me, if I didn't know who somebody was, this is pre-internet, people literally would find stuff for me or show me or bring me videos. Like Shelly Winters, who became our grandmother on the show, we had a really close relationship, but I knew who she was. You know, when Debbie Reynolds came in and, and all of these people, like, not just do you know who they are, but do you know who their family members are and kind of the lineage and understanding you're in rare water. And Roseanne loved having those people. So she always highlighted kind of who they were. What was Sharon Stone like in real life? Or... Sweet. You know, it's so funny. Uh, it's such a strange, like, and willing. You know what I mean? Like, that's a, that's a strange thing because you're basically going to have this young teen hit on you at the end of this show. And they dressed her down and made her like, a person from a trailer park and, and all of these things. And it's so funny. Sometimes, you know, the more you try to dress somebody down, the more clearly it becomes how, just how beautiful that human being is. Yeah. And it was kind of that, like you just couldn't, you, you just couldn't dim her light. Right. You tried to like underdress her and you're like her beauty. Yeah, she was in a robe and like, I think she had a towel on her head and you're right. Like you try to like downplay and, and, and still it's like, She's truly a beautiful person, and, and she was so vibrant and, and easygoing and playful. You know, those are the kinds of people you want, people who are all in to play. What about, I'm going to have to ask George Clooney, what was he like? See, George, I don't look as a guest. I thought George, to me, is just one of us. George, but see, George is the example for me, and he was the example for me for years when I was trying to get back into the business and I had worked all these normal jobs and was struggling, I remember when George was this extra person. And then I remember when he went off to do shows and some of them didn't go and some of them should have gone, but stuff happened or it just didn't work out. And he would come back and he would come back in bits and pieces. But George was so fun. Like George, George is what I want to be a guy who comes to work, does great work, builds projects, um, returns people's investments and does work the right way and then plays pranks, has fun and is fun to be around. And, you know, we used to run and play football and basketball and do all this other stuff. George is kind of a hero in so many ways because I watched his path. What about Bruce Willis? That was awesome. And it's particularly for him to be in the bed, like 
And that happened just as almost like as a joke. He was on the lot, stopped by to say hi. And they're like, we'd love to use you. Are you game? And he's like, yeah, I'm in. Wow. I mean, I know you're very nice, but who was like the most difficult guest star or just came with like the whole entourage diva, like, oh God, why is this person here? Like there has to be some people that came in and caused trouble. You know, what's funny is Roseanne wasn't going to put up with you causing trouble. Like she was pretty direct and she would, she'd say, we don't do stuff like that here. Or, you know, like, and our guest, we really tried hard. It's not like people were there for weeks and weeks and weeks. People, especially big stars came in for a couple days and we maximized their time, made them comfortable and we worked. And, and that part was always super professional. Because I think that's also when you know you're working with a legend, you don't want to be the place that they, you don't want to be their bad story. And yeah. so for the most part, they were good. You know, there were a couple times I had um, friends on the show, um, DJ's friends. Sometimes that's an example when you asked me before about parents who like kind of force their kids into stuff. A few of those without saying any names, like the parents wanted to be difficult. The parents wanted to ask for things or demand things and be what is considered a set parent. And that was so opposite of who Lisi and Sarah and my parents were. <laughs> that kind of yeah. rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. And they're not, I mean, you or Lisi or Sarah, they're not like a main cast member. You would think be the opposite. Well, I think sometimes people think they have to behave badly to get attention or to justify that they're worth it. And I I think that's true in life, but it's particularly true in our business sometimes. And I think that's That's one of those things where you're almost like trying to assert that you belong. And anytime you walk into an environment and you want to tell everybody how much you belong, it just kind of highlights, you might not be so comfortable or belong. Right. It's like, okay, your insecurity is just now shining through. (laughs) Right. How was Leonardo DiCaprio? You know, it's funny. That was one of Sarah's buddies, right? So like, our perception of like Leonardo DiCaprio or, or Tobey Maguire or all these people, like it's, it's swayed because that was just one of her friends, you know? And like when Johnny came in and became her friend, like Johnny just fit, Johnny felt like family. Same thing with Glenn Quinn. Like they just were part of us. I could see that. I could see that. So I, I, you, Yes. Morgan Fairchild and Sandra Bernhardt, two of my favorites. Oh, I'm Morgan Fairchild. We had this group of television classic moms, too, when we did the 50s episode, that the candid conversations they had that we couldn't play that I wish could have made it on television because they all kind of talked about their experience and it became basically the credit tag of that show of like, you get to do what? Well, in my day, we had this and these were the rules. And and watching multi-generational classic strong female performers in that way share both their great stories and their their triumphs but also their tribulations it was a great learning lesson and it was really valuable for me was there a lot of like me too talk you know what i mean like that was back in the day we actually did we we had a lot of that talk because our set was a place where you felt empowered especially a lot of women felt empowered in that way is they felt Roseanne was so strong that, you know, and and there were conversations that probably shouldn't have happened. I mean, you know, Roseanne would ask questions that most people shouldn't ask, you know, like, but 
she wanted to know, you know, who's the best person you dated, who was the best at this, who was the best at that, you know, what was their anatomy like? And you're just like, <laughs> you're like, like, I'm gonna walk away right now. And that's the thing, like, they never tried to shield you. Cause like, you know, you hear like notoriously like full house, you know, like you hear about just, I'm using that as an example. It's my second full house reference for no particular reason. Like it was an open set like that, like Roseanne and John and Lori were never like, okay, you know, he's young and they were kind of young too. And nothing like that. I think it's hard for people to understand when you get in that environment, you're around each other so much. It's kind of like being at home in a, in yeah. a sense, right? Your parents sometimes try to have conversations without you knowing but the, the reality is whatever's happening in your life happens in your life and happens around you. And in my case, I was small and there were lots of times I was quiet and had big ears and, and listened closely and learned a lot. And there were a lot of times afterwards who we were like, oh, uh, we probably shouldn't have had that conversation in front of him. But in the moment, also, if you get a legend and they start talking, you don't want to stop them talking regardless of who's around, right? Like, you're getting information that they don't share with everybody. So I yeah. think you just enjoyed that moment. And then afterwards you look over and you're like, Oh, <laughs> you probably shouldn't have heard that. And that's for me, I, that's probably my life is I know a lot of things I shouldn't know and learned a lot of things early, but at the same time had a lot of healthy people around me to help me process that. What about, you know, like your parents supported you right from the beginning, but like, were you aware of like, okay, I'm making a ton of money or I'm just assuming, you know, for a, a child, I'm making a ton of money. That's I, the big assumption in my case is that I made like tons of money. Like I laugh because I've had people who, who looked me up on, I don't know, Google or whatever. And like, I wish my net worth was half or a quarter of whatever it says. They're never right, are they? They're never, They're never right. right. But what people don't understand is also whatever you make, right, in our business. So 10% goes to an agent. If you have a manager, that's 15%. So you're at 25% before anything happens. Most of what you make, you can't really defend. So you, you pay a, a high percentage of taxes. So before you even get the check, 50, 60% is gone. I mean, that's the beginning part. Then expenses or whatever. Do you have a publicist? Do you have a, a lawyer? Do you have any of these other things? it can go really fast and it's a very expensive world. It's why you see so many athletes and performers who end up not having a lot of money. If you're not working, it's easy for it to go out. In my case, as a kid, you know, my parents tried to make good investments. My parents tried to do the best they could, but a lot of it didn't work out. And what's funny, what's funny, David is for me, that almost is better that I didn't end up rich, that I didn't have a ton of money. Really? You know, I, you know, my, car i was in an accident over the weekend that car was 20 plus years old and had 300,000 miles on it not because i just like was nostalgic and it's because every time i wanted to go buy a new car the kids needed something or the family needed something or we had other things and and there's a whole period of my life you know i was a high school baseball coach and worked a lot of jobs i, I worked construction and a warehouse and, and fugitive recovery and like all these really bizarre normal jobs but it was great because what it made me do is stay hungry and it gave me a life experience that now goes into my writing that I never would have had if I had just grown up in our business and I had gotten rich right away. Like, you know, and I was a kid, I made the least amount, um, fittingly, uh, and my parents came into this not knowing how much they should ask for. And so, you know, I'm still at the point now where, I'm just at the point now where I'm comfortable enough that I can really pursue the other things I want to do. 
but also I didn't get into this business for wealth and it's not, it's not the reason I'm still here is my, my job is to make great projects. Money will come. The abundance is coming. And then I tell people this all the time is my view on it is very simple. If it's not, it doesn't define you. It's a magnifying glass. If you're a kind person, you'll do really big kind things. You'll give to a lot of people. You'll make a legacy of kindness. If you're a selfish person, it'll never be enough. And you'll, constantly do things and step on people and use people. So, you know, I think that I made it this far in my life without ever really being totally like with ever having real abundance. I I've had times where I was comfortable and could pursue what I want. And that's true freedom and being rich, but I've never been wealthy and it never shaped my life or my kids. As you can <laughs> see from the room you're looking at. Well, no, I mean, it's, it's a nice room, but I do think, right, like that's a misconception. I just think from a lot of people that are not anywhere near the business, you know, I just think they lump everybody on TV or movies or music into one. Maybe I'm overstating that, but like, no, I just think, I think a lot of right. people would be shocked to find like, you know, nine years yeah. on like a major show. Well, in the beginning, you don't make much as a kid. Right. Um, I mean, that doesn't but- shock me. I just think it would shock a lot of people. Yeah, and I think this is the thing. It's so hard. Even nowadays, the numbers are relative too, right? Like people aren't making the crazy money that a lot of people think. You hear, you know, certain shows where people are making a million dollars an episode, right? Like Friends. That was one show on television, right? Like that wasn't every show. And a lot of times that's when a group of people actually does something really kind is they came together as a collective and said, okay, we're not going to all negotiate separate so that they can – minimize any of us right we're gonna all come together and team up and you know in my case the time is coming for me to be more comfortable but that's really you know look i'm building two charities and i'm looking at working in all of these other areas and have all these other projects my job is to create access and representation and projects that help and move people it's not for me to pad some bank account and run off. And and again, all of my kids are grown. So they're making their own way in the world. My youngest is 18. So the reality is I'm paying for one in college, one going to college. Like it's not hard to look and see where all of my investment is, but you know, I spent 20 years as a coach. I've invested in a lot of other kids and in a lot of small ways that people don't realize add up. But I invested in my opinion, not judging anybody else's, what I thought mattered. Right. So, you know, again, I think I'm rich, just not in not in monetary form. And I probably will never totally be that way because that's just not really my mode or function. Well, that's the thing. Other than, you know, the George Clooney's or these rant, you know, it's a working business where people go to work. And, you know, I people, people, I just think there's a lot of misconceptions like, you know, the studio heads and the people behind, those are the ones that are really rich. Yes. And actor doesn't know. Yeah. Make 10 times whatever the performer makes. Right. And the executives make probably 10 times what those people make. And here's what people have to realize in our business, um, not to get on a soapbox, but they say the average is about six to 8,000 people come here every month to be an actor. The average stay is six months. So most people struggle to be a working actor. The threshold to get insurance is, I want to say, something like eighteen or 20000 
That means a lot of working actors are making twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars as a yearly income. That's the majority of our field and the working actors. This is not a get rich quick scheme really for most people. That's a great byproduct and you see those select cases, but by and large, we are a union of hardworking people who are piecing together. I mean, on my podcast, I had a guy, um, um, Jesse, who does background work and does bits and pieces to piece together his year just to get to that number. And I think that's the part of our business that people don't understand. So I hope people kind of look at, you know, working actors, 30, 40, $50,000. There's a lot of people, there's a lot of actors I know sharing studio apartments just trying to make it work. And I, look, I work construction and I built sets and I worked on the production side and I did a lot of terrible jobs to get back to where I wanted to be. I built back here and I think I got a push by coming back with Roseanne and the Connors, but I was doing small things and building that way. I think people do a disservice because when they get to the point where people know them, no one talks about their lean days or those challenges. Yeah. It's always something I like to ask. I just, I'm intrigued by it, it. you know, like I I like the psychology about, which is leads to my next question because I'm intrigued by this too. Like, You know, were you aware then, since you weren't making the money, were you aware of like the celebrity aspect? We didn't have social media. It was a different time. But were you like, when did you become aware, you know, that like, you know, people wanted your autograph and like, did that change you? Did you, I mean, that's. It's from the get go, David, because like our show, like the numbers are different because there were only a few networks back then. Right. So we were pulling numbers that would be comparable to like, almost like the Super Bowl now. Right. Because we're, you know, 15, 18, 20 million people, right? Like you, you, the number of people who were watching network television was different. But I was, you're aware immediately because everywhere you go, people are calling your name or calling your character name or asking you for autographs or I always took that as a humbling thing. And I still really? to this day, it, it, anybody who's been to a taping the last few years, I stay and shake people's hands and thank them for coming because to me, I think the audience makes what you do possible. You were going to say something I didn't. No, no, I'm just, I'm taking it all in. Yeah. Like I, I love it. I, I'll sign autographs. You know, I, I've never gone and made people pay me to sign autographs. I, I have a hard time with that. Even, you know, I, I would be offered that when I was struggling and like working construction and doing some of these other things. And cause I've, I've been to those conventions. I mean, those yeah. conventions and, and, are a huge business nothing against them. I have nothing against them. I, I think I look at it too, the same way I did both as a baseball player and a coach, right. When I was trying to do for me, I don't coach kids for money. I don't take money to help a kid. There's a purity for, for me in it, in a weird way, if that makes any sense. Like, yeah. The last couple of years, I've been sending out autograph pictures to people in the mail, and that costs me money to do. But I did it because out of respect for those people who have supported the show or me for so long. And my hope is that those people will continue to support my other projects as, as they come. And at the end of the day, if me signing something makes someone's day, if me taking the moment to acknowledge them makes a difference for them, 
wow, how humbling for me and how arrogant it would be if I only do it if someone is giving me something in return, right? Like I, I am getting something. I'm getting their kindness. And so I don't know. It's, it's a, you become aware right away. I had no private life. I mean, pretty much. And in some ways I joke in my case, I think it, it was good for me because my assumption has always been that everything I do is public. Good, I think bad, that's and a, different. I think and that's so, a good assumption. I think the mistake yeah. people make is not thinking that. Well, and I coach kids now, like when I was a high school coach and now I have like, I have a team of 20 softball players, right? And I tell them, your social media lives on forever. You better assume everybody sees it. Even on your secret burner account, you better assume mom, dad, sister, brother, aunt, uncle. If you put out something that you don't want somebody to see, don't do it. Because yeah. sooner or later you'll get found. And for me, this goes to how I use my social media is I try to be very open, engaged and authentic. And I share when I'm having a rough day. Like I shared my car accident over the weekend only from the standpoint of my message was about perspective and valuing your time and realizing how precious life is. And I have been outspoken on social issues. You know, one of the things for me playing DJ is being in an interracial couple and how important that is to me because we don't cover it enough in the world. Uh, having a biracial child and the social issues that go along with it, being in the military, and I'm a huge military supporter because I come from a military family. And then, you know, just acceptance and inclusion. Inclusion is everything to me, you know, um, orientation and, and sexual preference and, and all of these things. People are slowly being able to come out and share who they really are. And I think that's a beautiful thing. It's my job to be an ally who is open to that experience with you and shares some support because there are plenty of people who won't, but we don't get better or come closer together without sharing. And so I've been doing lives on my Instagram. I try to connect with people as much as possible. And people ask me pretty much anything. Some things I'm not qualified to answer. So it's much easier when they ask me about the show or something like that. Do you find like that was like, what do you credit for the huge success the first time around? Is it like inclusion? Is it because it showed blue collar America and every show was just dynasty and the Cosby's and wealth? Yeah. I mean, is that like, what do you credit for this huge, like legend of a TV show that has its place in TV history forever? I think it's a little different for different people, but here's what I'll say from the, I've talked to a lot of audience members. I think it's the combination of being very authentic I think there's something about not being wealthy because most of us are not. It's normal in life for all of us to struggle and try to find economic empowerment, right? Like, and, and, it, and it's relative, right? Because once you, it seems like once you move up a little, you still have the same problems just in a different category. Yes. Um, but also a family where kids had a point of view, where everybody didn't get along all the time, but was very honest and I still feel like, and this is in my writing, is not running from social issues, not being afraid to tackle real life stuff that people deal with because we did a lot of great comedy. And that's the beauty of the show is we've got to tackle big essences with comedy, but it's domestic violence, it's uh, prejudice, it's you know the episode White Men Can't Kiss where DJ doesn't wanna kiss the girl because she's black, and the growth of that character, I feel like 
that's why I think that's what brought me back to the show. Even after the show got canceled for the Connors is what brought me back was the idea that we could share this story that I think is so necessary in our world of a kid who had some bias or some ignorance who literally grows to the point where that's the love of his life. That's a story that I, I'm dying to tell because I feel like I hope it opens a door for people who may be judging other people to say, Hey, wait a minute. I should be a little more open to my cousin, my friend, my neighbor, whoever it is. Could you tell right away, or maybe you were too young, you know, cause look, this is the most fickle business around. You have shows with like the right names behind it. And you're like, this is going to be a huge hit and it's a flop. Like, could you tell when you were filming the first season episodes, one, two, three, four, like did Roseanne, did the network, were they like, this is huge or you just really didn't know and it came out and you're like holy shit and no, was I, it like because i don't remember was it really right away like the first oh yeah. few first episodes? episode i think we were number like 10 or oh, eight. wow okay and then from that point on we were number one for the first i think six or seven years and we never lost that for like six or seven years wow but i think you know and and here's the way you know and this is the thing in comedy i hate and this happens in our business going behind the scenes is i hate when people fake laugh on a set it's always been my pet peeve. People do it to encourage and support. And, you know, the fifth, sixth, eighth time you've done a scene or whatever on set for timing and things, it helps to have people laugh. I don't want anybody to laugh premature or, or fake, right? What we did so often compelled, not just other people to laugh, but you see in scenes, there's times where we laugh. Yeah. For it to be something you can't control and spontaneous that's when you know, right? Like, and you can feel it. And this is why I miss an audience. You can feel as a performer when you're building, you can feel kind of that crescendo come and then you can play with that rhythm and it, it empowers you because you, you feel the rhythm of what's supposed to be that natural moment. I know it sounds crazy, but if anybody who's performed, especially at a high level with people nearby knows that feeling, right? Like, your best music, your best notes, your best jokes, they can come and be heightened in that way. Could you tell, so like then when Tom Arnold joined the cast and married Roseanne and then their relationship was going awry and he was, you know, into alcohol, like, like could yeah. you tell when there was drama with oh, the adults? I mean, you could. Look, the, the truth is, you know, I saw a lot of chemical dependency as a kid, I watched, you know, people struggle with alcoholism and drugs and cocaine and pot and, and, and all kinds of things. Um, and I was uniquely aware because I loved so many of these people. And so in my case, I think what I've always done is valued the best parts of people and understood that people are flawed and that they have challenges. And, and it, what it did was it made me a person who realized the impact a lot of those things had on people. So I don't really drink because I was usually the designated driver. I mean, I was a guy 16 still going and picking up coworkers from bars at night because I was a safe ride home. I was someone who like when people wanted to use drugs and, and I had access to a lot of stuff, it made my decisions very easy. And it's one thing I've always told my kids is, in my life, the thing that has really given me the opportunity to do things and kept me both working but also alive was my brain, is my 
willingness and my connection to people and my understanding and being able to get out of situations, I never wanted to alter that too much. And so I was very selective about not getting heavy into it. And I watched people lose a lot over it. I lost friends. Um, I've seen a lot of people and I've lost a lot of people to overdoses. I've lost a lot of family members. And I think what it, you know, and I lost even promiscuity, right? Like I lived through the AIDS crisis in that late eighties, early nineties, where people I loved were very carefree and open and not, you know, it's funny because at the time everybody wanted to act as if that was only happening in the gay community, but it was happening across the board. Yeah. And I lost so many good people along the way. And I lost so many, as I was really understanding orientation and sexual orientation with so many of these people who were so wonderful and loving, I was losing so many of them. And it makes you uniquely aware of the impact of these things. So I was always super selective and it, it kept me from probably being, I'm pretty wild as I am anyway. I don't need a whole lot of help or, or uh, chemical assistance, but it, I was, I, of course I was aware. I was aware of all of the things that were going on and who was struggling and how they were struggling in relationships and addictions and things that should never have happened. And, Tom's chaos and, and some of the bully behavior that occurred. I was aware that a lot of our writers weren't treated kind of the way they should, or, or that there was definitely a hierarchy. And there is an element maybe even of shame and guilt as a kid, because as an actor, you get to start high on that. And you haven't really earned that. And so right. I have always looked at it the same way, whether I, when I walk in and I'm an actor or I'm a director or I'm a producer. I've also walked in and been a PA. I've been an electrician. I've been a cameraman and I've walked on sets. You know, I, I got my Emmy nomination is for production design and being a builder and designer and, you know, art department. When I walked onto that set, nobody knew my past because it was a time period where I'd been away and I just looked different and no one's assuming hey, this guy who has this career as a famous actor is going to be the guy building things and hanging off the side of a building and, and decorating things. It was only when I turned to someone who was inappropriate and said, hey, we don't behave that way and I'm not going to let you treat people that way. And I almost got fired. That all of a sudden someone looked into my background and went, hey, wait a minute, this guy knows more than the average guy in that department. But I... I don't ascribe to kind of this hierarchical view. People are people. And at the end of the day, if we go home, I, I love my crew. I talk to the crew as much as I talk to my castmates. Those people have value. And if you put their value based on their job or their bank account, then you're going to miss some of the best people in the world. But there you go. That's the world we live in. You're the builder and they're treating you one way and the next thing yep. you're like, wait, that's DJ from Roseanne and he works through Roseanne and they treated yeah. you different. I mean, I'm not saying I agree with it, but I'm just saying, no, it's the, it's truth. the whole but, concept of like, look at our worlds. Right. And, and privilege, right? Like this is some of the things that you have to, and I've always uniquely been aware of that. And I, and I think my life experience is anytime I get too far away from that mode, something happens that reminds me, you know, I was a construction guy. If you heard all the crap someone talked about me as a construction guy or, or I was a really hard worker. So people love that. 
but I got hurt on a job where, you know, nobody wanted to help or take care of me. Luckily, I still had insurance through the union. And so it's funny because I, you know, you, you realize people want life to be hierarchical. Just like yeah. divide us among demographics. I'm not a person who believes in the stratification or the labeling of people based on race, gender, orientation. Like I just, you know, like the census for me in some ways is like a nightmare because if you ask me what my race is, I'm a human. If you ask me what the person across from me is, I'm going to say, well, I don't know them yet. Let me tell you about them because they got a name and a purpose and, and a life. I don't ask people a lot of what I consider to be small questions. I'm a big question guy is I want to know what your dream is. Like David, at the end of this, I want to know about you because we had this amazing conversation and I did most of the talking. So now I'm fascinated about you, but that's who I am. And I think it informs what I do and how I treat people. Well, A, I'll tell you anything you want to know about me. B, you, you are the exception I mean, A, as a human being, and B, I think, in the entertainment industry, you're a rare exception. So, I mean, when Roseanne 1.0, when it ended originally, you know, did you ever, like, were you resentful then? Like, when you had those years trying to find work? I was devastated when the show first ended. I'll just start there, is I, between season eight and nine, we didn't know if we were coming back. So, and why didn't you come back? Just the ratings eventually. I mean, well, no, just... that was eight. So, we did come back for nine. So, in that last off season before, we didn't know. We didn't know if the ratings were still good, but people kind of had moved on. And John was doing movies and wasn't under contract. And there were a lot of things going on. You know, the girls had both basically left the show. And there was this feeling that it kind of had run its course. And, and I think she wasn't sure how much she wanted to do. That was a brutal summer for me. Because I went through the realization of a lot of what we're talking about, of how much I loved everybody, how much these people meant to me, and that I didn't say it. And I am a person having lost a lot of friends along the way and dealt with a lot of death and work and watching people get fired and all that stuff, right? I really spent that summer was like, no, if we go back to work, I'm not going to leave anything unsaid. And I'm kind of that way now is I'm the guy who will tell you how much I love you. I'm the guy who will, and I'm not afraid to be upset or get choked up in front of people and say, look, you mean the world to me or tell somebody, you know, I'll say I love you first. And if you break my heart, well, then I'll just deal with that because I think I'll live more authentically and brave that way. And I'd rather have my heart broken or I'd rather give someone the opportunity to do something amazing and trust them than to become jaded by a lot of bad experience, if that makes any sense. That I protect sense. myself, but um, so that's- It's summer, a very non-New York City way to be. I'm in New York City, but yeah. <laughs> I, I get it. It all makes sense to me. It's just, I, I get it. Yeah, It's hard. It's really vulnerable and it's, it's, it's painful, to be honest with you. Uh, I don't recommend it for most people. My writing partner always tells me I'm the opposite of him and that uh, he didn't know how I do it every day with, with the stuff I go through. So- but it's not for the faint of heart. Um, so when the next season came and we sh- the show did end, I had literally written a handwritten note to most of the people. Um, and so I got to say goodbye, but I was devastated. And I went back to public school and I was miserable. This is all I wanted to do. And I, you know, was in an environment where, you know, 
I was used to people having real problems and my coworkers had jobs and cars and families and like bills to pay. And I hung out and went home with some of the crew members and spent time with them as well. And so like, then I went to a school that was kind of affluent at first. So I moved around a bunch, you know, my parents and I didn't totally see eye to eye. I moved in and out of the house. I kind of, you know, uh, it was kind of on my way or the highway. My dad's an old school, you know, my dad was born in China and then grew up in Israel when it became a country um, and then moved to the United States. And he's an old world tough, he's a military veteran. Like it's my way or the highway kind of thing. And I was older than my age. And, and at that point realizing everybody wanted me to move on and do something else with my life. And I knew this is what I wanted. And so it was a clash and it was a battle and it was, you know, these investments didn't work out the way that they could have. So I didn't have as many options as, as, you know, and that's a little frustrating and, you know, all of these things. And most teenagers have angst anyway, because you're finding yourself and that's a tough time anyway. And I was getting in fights every single day at school because people would come up to fight me because they didn't like the show. Or I went to school, my initial high school had a lot of white supremacy. Well, as, as a really open, accepting kid who grew up in, in a predominantly Jewish household, I was an excellent high profile target, you know? Um, but that came with the territory too. And I, I was okay with that. Like I was, I, people didn't like Roseanne all the time. And I had to, to face the brunt of that in a lot of ways. And that was part of the growing up experience of my life. And I'm okay with that. So when the show ended, I never was, was like jaded or angry. I just understood that it had to end. The hard part for me was not having the people who had said they were going to be support structures, but they were all busy blown up in a million pieces trying to find their own jobs. Right. And that's, that's also this business that people don't realize is you won't see somebody for 20 years and then suddenly you work together again. And all of a sudden that those connections come back, but in the interim, people don't always help or hold each other up in that way. They can't. Right. And were you, was that like one of your first, I mean, you had other loss, but like, was that one of your first like harsh realities of the business of like, Sarah's not calling me back. Where's Lisey? Well, I, you know, I, I was uniquely aware of not, like Sarah and Lisey were still young and finding themselves and they were in college. And, and I tried not to burden those people with a lot of my stuff, which is why I ended up, you know, living in Compton with, with other people and, and finding new avenues and, and expanding my world. Um, and what I would tell you is it would be unrealistic for me to look at those people. But here's the difference is when this show ends, because it will end at some point. Jaden Ray ever needs anything, that young woman can call me anytime she wants. Because for me, I'm kind of like an honorary uncle and I will want to help that young woman for the rest of her life. But that's who I am. And I can't expect everybody else to feel that way because it's not fair. That's, that's a uh, responsibility that I'm choosing to take on by my vision. If Ames called me and needed something, I'm there, right? Like, even more Jaden and I and her little brother Jojo because the support structure and trying to make sure that the world gets to see her and trying to help her get seen as a young woman of color that that sometimes doesn't always get all the opportunities I feel she deserves. It's my job to help in any way I can to use my 
privilege status awareness to empower that. And so, again, it, it, it is a thing where 20 years from now, if I haven't heard from her and she calls me up and says, hey, I need help. The question is, how much can I help and in what way is best to empower her? But that still must have been hard at the time to be like, why aren't these people calling me back? Because really, it's all you knew since six. Yeah, I, it, it was. Uh, you know, I had a night where I didn't have anywhere to go. You know, I, I, I pretty, pretty much haven't ever told this story, but I took a cast and crew list. I kept every cast and crew list from 1988. I used to circle everybody's names for who I thought one day when I was a writer, producer, whatever. These are the people that I, I want to work with. And it was 90, probably 96, maybe, I think. I think we, no, 97, maybe. And, you know, things just weren't working out. And I was kind of on my own. And I stopped at a payphone and kind of started working my way down the list. And I tried not to call people who I knew had kids or who had a lot of responsibilities or, or, or were struggling themselves. But the pager never rang. Nobody called back. And when you realize you're alone, and I had a real short stint of homelessness, you realize there's nowhere to go, right? You are struck by this reality that these connections, while very real and people mean part of what they say, you're not 100% family or not everyone, like I said, not everyone has that same heart. So for me, I had to reevaluate my life in some ways and understand that I needed to grow up. I needed to build, but it's also why what I'll tell you is the production companies that I'm building and my vision of how I want to do it. I want to do it a little different. My writing partner and I talk about all the time is I want to set where people come and work, but I also want to empower the people I work with to move forward, to, to rise in this business, to go and do things. And I want people to be, I have some really creative ideas of how I feel like I can empower people to make better planning and better life choices without forcing anybody to be who they don't want to be. And who'd you keep in touch with the most during that time? Roseanne, because you worked on some yeah. projects with her. Uh, a couple of years later, uh, Roseanne and I worked a ton together. Um, she actually called me to her credit um, when I was getting married and having my first kid at 18. And said to me, you know, you're, you're going a long way to be heard. I'm here, right? Like, I see you and I, I hear you and I'm here. And that was huge for me. Um, and I was there in her, her group of people that, you know, I worked on her kid music videos and I worked on a bunch of production stuff for her. I worked on her talk show to help make that work when, when it was struggling and they needed people to have strong opinions and be willing to share them with her and help guide and knew her, her tone and her style. So for me, you know, I talked to John pretty much the whole time, you know, especially as social media started happening, Facebook and things like this, it made it so much easier for me to reconnect with people. And so there was a whole period of my life where, you know, everybody's going, well, you know, he's a dad and he's working all these normal jobs or he's, you know, working production stuff in the back and on the side and working his way. John set me up with a meeting with an agent one time, you know, the meeting didn't work out because the agency wasn't looking for people, but it, it was a uniquely brave and, and really kind thing because it opened a door for me. And 
these are steps that people took along the way. And I feel like I've done a really good job of holding on to those connections and letting people know that they matter and respecting those relationships. And when you were trying to get work before these other jobs, was it like you're DJ Connor? Like, we just don't see you in this other role. I imagine, you know, I, right after I did, like I did Seinfeld, um, which was so much fun. And then I got to work with James Spader as well as that whole cast. And then um, I worked on AI. So I got to work with Steven Spielberg and I, you know, I got cast in that and Adrian Grenier was, was in that group and it was a really talented group and Jude Law and Haley Joe Osmond. And it's funny, I got to do a bunch of stuff right away and then it kind of got quiet. And when I got married at the time, I was raising, helping to raise my little brother, who's nine years younger than me. And I got married and we started talking about, should we wait to have kids? And I was already doing parent-teacher conference and all this stuff. So we kind of decided, well, if it happens, it happens. And it, and it happened quickly. And I had a kid at 18. I think a lot of people in the business thought that was like the first sign that I was spinning out. Um, I went to an audition where literally... I walked into the audition. It was like the second or third audition. And basically they started saying, well, okay, well, here's our schedule and here's where you have a fitting and here's where you're like, basically you got this job. And it was another series and I was so excited. (laughs) And then the person turned to me and said, Hey, what's with the ring? And I'm like, I'm like, Oh, you know, I got married a couple months ago. I have this baby and everything's great and everything's wonderful. And literally everything changed in an instant. They turned to me and said, you know, we have this other part for you to read for that. We'd love you to go out and and read this thing. And I'm like, I I didn't really grasp what was happening. And I walk out and I look and the guy's like 30, 35. I barely look 35 now at 18. I look like about 12. So there was no way I was getting that part. And I just went from keep your schedule clear. And here's when we go into production to, Hey, you're not who we want. Right. And my original agent dropped me at really close after that and just kind of was like, look, you're a tough sell right now. And, and, you know, you're in a weird space and you look really young and, you know, and I had acne and like I had normal stuff that people that age have. And I was so happy and I really thought about it was like, okay, I want to kind of go behind the scenes a little bit because I want and get some normalcy because I wanted my kids to have kind of a normal life when they were young. Thanks for tuning into our part one sit down with Mike Fishman and stay tuned for part two where we talk about his journey back, how he got back into the industry, what this industry is really all about. Guys, it's a business and it's a tough one at that. He shares more stories. He shares the revival, the reboot, Roseanne, after all those years to be back on TV. The tweet heard around the world immediate cancellation, what it's like to go from being back and on top with all that fanfare and media and then just to be canceled and then be back as the Connors. Guys, we cover it all. Stay tuned for part two. Michael has a truly remarkable story. Thanks for listening to yet another episode of Behind the Velvet Rope. Because without you listeners, I would just be a crazy person with voices in my head. And if you like what you hear, Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe on Apple Podcasts under Behind the Velvet Rope. And when you're done subscribing, feel free to leave a five-star write-up review because the write-up reviews 
actually count. We read each and every one of them. We post the best ones. And the reviews really help our shows keep going. And we really appreciate everything you guys say, especially the positive ones. And if you want to find us online, we're at Behind Velvet Rope on Instagram. We are at David Yontef on Instagram. We're behind the Velvet Rope on Apple Podcasts. Or head on over to Patreon because you know what? There are just some things we can't talk about here. So for our bonus episodes, go to Patreon and type in Behind the Velvet Rope. And if you still aren't sick of me and you want more David, go to Cameo and book me on Cameo. And you can ask me anything there. I'll answer whatever you want. And I have a bargain basement price of $10. Thank you guys. See you soon.